Welcome to episode 147 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux GNU's. news. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, System76 made some waves when they announced their new Cosmic desktop environment. Slackware is back with a vengeance. Okay, not really with a vengeance, but Slackware did announce a new new beta version for Slackware 15.0. And in addition to Slackware, we also got some other great topics in distro news. This week, Manjaro 21.0, Zorn OS 16 beta, and we're even going to be taking a look at the latest release of FreeBSD. We've got some more desktop environment news to check out with the release of LXQt 0.17 and JDE 2.0. And then in the app news section, we're going to talk about an email client called MailSpring because it's back in the news with the release of 1.9. And we're going to be continuing the much-beloved legal news section with Zenoos, I probably pronounced that wrong, but I don't care, suing IBM and Red Hat. All that and so much more coming up on this week's episode of Twill, your weekly source for Linux good news. Up first in the show this week, we're going to talk about a really interesting announcement from System76 because they announced that they are working on their own in-house built desktop environment for Pop! OS called Cosmic. Now, Cosmic stands for Computer Operating System Main Interface Components, and uh, naturally this is an acronym designed to specifically spell out the word cosmic, which I'm okay with. It does match their branding and everything, but I thought it was kind of interesting to see. Like, I just thought it was going to be called cosmic, but it is an acronym, in fact. Uh, So this is based on GNOME desktop environment. It's uh, until now, Pop! OS has been using the GNOME desktop environment uh, with various customizations and improvements, such as the Pop Shell for tiling and some other things like that. And also uh, uh, Pop! OS Linux 21.04, which is due out in June 2021, will be coming with Cosmic Desktop. So Cosmic Desktop will have a lot of differences from in comparison to GNOME, but to be clear, it is still based on GNOME. It's not basically, it's not a fork of GNOME. It's more of an extension set sitting on top of GNOME, modifying the way the workflows uh, exist and how they how they work and that kind of thing. So it's not, a lot of people have been saying it's a fork of GNOME, but it's, it's not a fork. It's a, you know, it's just an extension set sitting on top. So I think this is really interesting that they're doing it that way because it allows them to have a you know an interesting modified interface that is custom to what they want to do in terms of their vision and that kind of thing without having to you know rebuild you know reinvent the wheel sort of so to speak. So I think this is a really cool approach. Now they've also said that they're going to be having a dock by default. Now there are they got some responses from uh, previous users of some like research basically saying a lot of people want a dock so they're going to be including a dock by default in Cosmic. They're also changing the way the overview works. So they're basically starting with 3.38 with GNOME, so it's gonna have a similar aspect to the way that it works inside of GNOME with the workspaces and the application views. So the workspaces is going to be separate from the applications views by having two different buttons on the dock. So you click one button to uh, open the workspaces view which shows you you're running apps and you can switch between those apps and also switch between the different workspaces. Then you have the applications view which gives you a different experience of, of what the interface is for the applications like app drawer for all your installed apps and that sort of stuff. 
So real quick, we're going to do a quote from System76. They say that we're providing a home desktop user experience in Pop! OS through our GNOME-based desktop environment, Cosmic. It's a refined solution that makes the desktop easier to use, yet more powerful and efficient for our users through customizations. The new designs are developed from extensive testing and user feedback since the Pop! OS 20.04 release and are currently being further refined in their testing phase. So why do they make these changes? Like why specifically the workspace split from the application stuff? They say that the reason is that they found out that even GNOME veterans have a tendency to pause in their task after opening the activities overview because you have to open the overview. In GNOME currently, you have to open the overview and then go into the applications. So if you want to go to quickly into the applications, it does. it's not really possible that I know of. It might be There might be a shortcut for it, but I don't think there is. There could be. So I could be wrong about that, but they've actually changed it. So when you hit the super key inside of the cosmic desktop, it will activate the app launcher first rather than opening the overview or the workspaces view. So, and they say that this split view allows you to access the application picker in a single click while the cleaner UI design prevents visual distractions, end quote. So this is really interesting that they're doing it. And I really, I'm, I'm, I was kind of you know, a little bit skeptical when I heard it initially because I was thinking, no, not another fork, but this is not a fork. So this is actually quite interesting in the way the way they're doing it and the way they're customizing it through 3.38 as well as GNOME 40. That's right. So to clarify what I mean by that, according to System76 CEO Carl Richel on Twitter, they said he said that Cosmic will be based on GNOME 3.38 from the 2104 release, and then on GNOME 40 in the 21.10 release. The reason for this is because Ubuntu is not using GNOME 40 in the 2104 release, so if they were going to try to do GNOME 40, they would have had to uh, basically maintain a separate version from Ubuntu for GNOME, and that would kind of, that would basically create a fork, and that's not what they wanted to do. They wanted to do a sitting on top approach, which is why they're doing 3.38 instead. And the reason why Ubuntu is doing 3.38 instead of GNOME 40 is because the the changes in the stack for GNOME are quite significant in the 3.38 to, to GNOME 40. And so they only had about a month, roughly, from the release of GNOME 40 or the release of 21.04, and that's why they chose to not do that. So I think it's really interesting that they're doing it. I think it totally makes sense. They're doing, they're doing 3.38 for 21.04 in Pop! OS, as well as 40.21.10, which is also expected in Ubuntu 21.10. They also say that they have a plan to have vertical and horizontal workspace options. So if you're curious about the GNOME 40 thing and you saw the interface, it's quite different. It uses a, a workspace layout of a, of a horizontal approach. And some people have, you know, not been very um, receptive of that change. So uh, in this case, the Cosmic Desktop will be having a vertical by default, though you there will be a horizontal uh, option at some point as well. So if you wanted to do a vertical thing, maybe Pop! OS Cosmic could be an option for you in that context. And also, I think the tiling aspects of Pop! OS Cosmic is going to be interesting and a lot of other things. Uh, so if you're interested in learning more about System76 new desktop environment, Cosmic, I'll have links to the blog post as well as some tweets from Carl on the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about Slackware because it's back with a vengeance. I mean, obviously it's not with a vengeance because it's 
Anyway, so Slackware 15.0 beta has been released, and this is really interesting because a lot of people are familiar with the concept of Slackware but haven't really seen much, you know, if they're new to Linux in the past five years, you wouldn't have seen much about it because this is the first release in five years from 14.2, which was released, well, not exactly five years, but almost five years. So that was uh, June 2016. Now, 4.0 was released in 2012, so... It's been a long time coming for a new version of Slackware. And if you're not familiar, Slackware is also the oldest actively maintained Linux distribution because it was started in 1993-92 era uh, by Patrick Volkerding. So uh, this new version of Slackware 15.0 has switched the default encoding from ASCII to U2F8. And they've also uh, switched from Console Kit 2 to eLogND. And they've migrated to Python 3, moved the uh, package database from var log packages to var lib package tools. They've added some new uh, functionality with SDL2, FFmpeg, uh, lame support for like MP3 stuff. Uh, Wayland to the core system has been has been switched. Uh, they've also done some interesting stuff with the desktop environments that they have, which I was kind of surprised that how much of a jump they're doing. So they're going from KDE4 which is what it was during the time of the first release of 14.0. And they're switching to Plasma 5. And they're switching to the latest version of Plasma 5 with version 5.21.4 and KDE Applications 5.81.0. So that I thought was a, is a huge jump. So that's quite interesting. Uh, and also in two months since the alpha start, the Slackware 15.0 has seen many package updates and they say that uh, it's ready to go as a beta. So they've they've changed 15.0 uh, beta is now using the GCC 10.3 compiler. They have a newer version of the Linux kernel with 5.10 LTS and many other package updates like the KDE desktop environment, as well as updates to XFCE because they're going to be using XFCE 4.16 in this release. So the, the latest the Linux kernels will be ready to 5.10.29 LTS series. And also they're updated. The, they have a stable a 5.11.13 kernel that is also available through the testing repository if you want to use that. So this is really interesting because this is like the uh, the mark it is a completion of migration for Python 3. They now have Wayland packages being available in the core. They have many updated packages and modernization of the structure. They have updated XFCE. They've updated KDE Plasma. So it's uh it's really interesting to see Slackware come out of the gate with such a huge uh, release with 15.04. For uh, I don't know why I said 04, 15.0. <laughs> so this is Slackware 15.0 beta. It is you can't actually get an an image right now from like an official ISO, but you can get an unofficial image built from the current development branch, which is available. Uh, I'll have that linked in the show notes if you want to check that out. So if you do want to check out Slackware 15.0 beta, or if you want to wait until Slackware 15 comes out, you can do that as well. But I'll have links to the latest announcement for the for the uh, release notes for the beta, as well as the link for the unofficial image if you would like to try it out now. So links to all of that in the show notes. Up next in the show, we have a new release for LXQt desktop environment. This is 0.17, and this is the first update to the desktop environment of LXQt for 2021. LXQt is the lightweight Qt desktop that was born out of the uh, basically the merger of Razor Qt and uh, LXDE projects, where they decided to you know join forces and make LXQt. Now LXDE is still exists, but it's not maintained anymore by 
you know, any st- sense of the, you know, the term really like technically they have security updates and whatnot, but meh. LXQt is the current version for both projects, and that's good because I am a I'm a fan of Qt. I don't like their structure of their licensing and their methodology of re- releases that they recently uh, activated, but the technology of the toolkit is still quite good. So I'm torn there. It is a great toolkit, but anyway, moving on. The LXQt panel can now behave like a dock. So, for example, it has the ability to auto hide a panel. Uh, when it overlaps a window. It also, they have improvements to a keyboard navigation on the desktop. They have in, makes improvements to the power management system. So it now has an option to disable the idle watcher when the active window is in full screen mode. So you don't have to worry about it, you know, basically thinking your system is idle when you're, when you have something in full screen, like a video, for example. So that's nice. Uh, LXQt Archiver now supports opening and extracting disk images. They've added full support for file creation times in the file manager of PCMANFM. Uh, cute, uh, as well as to add support for the non-LXQt apps to save their last settings when the session is terminating, which is pretty cool. Uh, the SVG icon sets are now handled more completely uh, thanks to an independent usage of the Qt's SVG rendering system. And they've also made some updates to the terminal emulator Q terminal and the Qt uh, image viewer application for LX image and it's a variety of other things. It's not a huge release. It's a 0.17, but it is a significant moving forward for the, the desktop environment. So that is nice to see. If you'd like to learn more about LXQt, I'll have links to their blog post as well as some other stuff for like GitHub and that sort of thing in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. You can use their visually rich experience to build rapidly, deploy, manage, and scale apps uh, on the app platform, and it has support for a variety of different languages like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby. It also has support for static sites and Docker, as well as container images, and it offers you high scalability with zero infrastructure management. Now, this is really cool, but what does that mean? Well, you simply point your GitHub or GitLab repository to the app platform and let it do all the heavy lifting for you, such as handling the infrastructure like app runtimes and dependencies. You can push code to production in just a few clicks. It also does securing of your apps automatically through creating, managing, and renewing your SSL certificates, as well as also protecting your apps from DDoS attacks. You can run code with little to no customization because the app platform uses cloud native standards and automatically analyzes your codes, your creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters for you. As a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free actually better than free because you can go to do.co slash DLN and get a $100 free credit from DigitalOcean for their app platform, as well as other services that DigitalOcean does. So again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with that $100 free credit for DigitalOcean's app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, Manjaro 21.0 has been released. So Philip Mueller from Manjaro announced the release of Manjaro Linux 21.0, and it's a significant update for the project's uh, desktop-oriented editions. Uh, Basically, the GNOME version, the KDE version, and the XFCE desktops also have a lot of updates for those different editions, with Plasma probably being the most changes coming in this release. Uh, For those who who may be aware, uh, Manjaro 21 was actually not released this week. It was uh, somehow I missed including it on the show when it was released, so I wanted to make sure I fixed that and included it in the show. So Manjaro 21.0 is in this episode. So anyway, 
what happened with these latest release of 21.0 is that they have updated the kernel from, for uh, Linux 5.10 LTS kernel while also keeping the Linux 5.4 LTS kernel around for those wanting to use it on older hardware. And they also have other options if you want to use 5.11 or 5.12 in the testing uh, branches and that sort of stuff. So those are there as well. Um, Manjaro 21.0 also has uh, making the use of Pamac 10 graphic package manager, and which was released at the end of last year. And it has a lot of improvements such as uh, performance improvements, optimized database interaction, system D dynamic users, and uh, uh, co quite a few other new features inside of that. Uh, they've also uh, made some changes for the default interaction when you set up the GNOME edition because they remove the GNOME initial setup application. Now, some people don't like it for some uh, confusing aspects of the location data being sent to applications. And I, I don't know if that's the reason that they got rid of it, but I, I think I've, I have seen people, you know, not happy about that particular piece, though you could, you know, ch turn it off if you don't want to do that. So, you know, there's that. And also, they're all three editions of their main versions, which is uh, GNOME, XFCE, and uh, KDE Plasma, have been updated to include the uh, Calamari's installer that have a variety of, variety of improvements to like improve country selection, keyboard layout screens, and many more things. And there's been a lot of improvements to the different editions based on the upgrades to those desktop environments. So I'll give you a quick breakdown of what happened. But if you want to go to into more depth about each um, different, different desktop. I'll talk about the episode we covered it on this show to learn more if you want to check that out. So first of all, XFCE 4.16 has been updated in the Manjaro 21.0 release. So this, this window manager received a lot of updates and uh, improvements again in the area of compositing and GLX. They also say that they have support for fractional scaling was added into the display dialog which has like different configurations of, if you're not familiar with fractional scaling is like a high DPI support for, you know, very like 4K type of monitors and that sort of stuff. They've also improved the settings manager for the uh, search and filter capabilities of that settings manager. Uh, and if you wanna learn more about XFCE 4.16, check out Twill episode 117, because we go into way more depth in XFCE 4.16 in that episode. So I'll have that linked in the show notes. And also in the GNOME edition, they have, uh, they're using GNOME 3.38. You may be wondering why not GNOME 40 because it's based on Arch and Arch has GNOME 40. Well, it's because they're doing uh, some more testing for GNOME 40. So it's currently not available, uh, but you, it will be relatively soon. So it's in their testing branches right now for GNOME 40, but GNOME 3.38 is the current option for the GNOME edition uh, for 21 of Manjaro. And, they, and if you'll learn more about the release for GNOME 3.38 or GNOME 40. You can check out episode Twill of Twill 117 for 3.38 and episode 144 of GNOME 40. And then the next edition is the KDE Plasma edition, and they have a lot of new changes because they have upgraded to KDE Plasma 5.21, which introduces a ton of new stuff. Now, if you want to learn more about the whole thing, like I said, go check out episode 139 of that, uh, that episode for Twill. It will give you all of the different stuff that happened in KDE Plasma 5.21. But quick note, this one includes the new, uh, the faster and easier to use uh, app launcher that is in Plasma 5.21, which is a new version of Kickoff. They've also have some improvements to uh, in the system monitoring for system resources, uh, which is a new application called Plasma System Monitor, which is a really nice check, uh, application. And also this version has the first class support for Wayland in 521. So if you want to learn more about it, again, Will 139. Links to all of this 
in the show notes, as well as links to uh, Manjaro 21.0. Again, check out the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to be talking about Zorin OS because they released the beta for Zorin OS 16. This includes a new desktop look, performance improvements, and a wide range of software made available through the addition of flat packs and snaps. Uh, so Zorin OS 16 is based on Ubuntu 20.04 LTS. Also, Focal Fossa is the codename for that one. And it features a revamped look and feel. So if you're not familiar, Zorin OS has a bunch of different ad- additions. And I think that they the way they do uh, commercial edition, having extra features like a premium features that you can pay for the ultimate edition for, I think it's $53 roughly. Uh, th- that, that's an interesting approach to being able to fund the project. They also have free options for core, light, and education editions. Uh, the core one using GNOME as a base and the light version having XFCE as a base. So if you are interested in checking those out, those are the free options. But if you want the extra features, the Ultimate Edition has a bunch of other stuff, including uh, layout customizations for a Mac OS style, if you like that. But in this latest release of Zorin OS 16, they do have a new layout with a new Windows 10X-like desktop layout. Uh, and they also have a new theme for their design. So it's actually a very nice looking theme, though it is quite bright. So if you are prefer- preference is a dark theme, I don't know if they have a dark theme variant, but if you uh, do like dark themes, uh, this will be quite bright. So uh, it does look nice, but it is very bright. Uh, it also features new animations and new artwork and wallpapers and has been revamped for the lock screen because they have a new feature that blurs the ver- the desktop background inside of the lock screen, which looks nice. They've also had some improvements to uh, Zorin OS 16 by introducing multi-touch gest- touchpad gestures and more customizable taskbar for new settings like being able to uh, change the panel size and transparency as well as multi-monitor setups and a variety of other things to the panel. So Zorin OS 16 also... Uh, they say that we're introducing a, an all-new desktop layout with Zorn, o, Zorn Appearance, which resembles the desktop interface with Windows 10X. It features a modern and streamlined UI that adapts well to computers with touchpad, mice, or touchscreens, end quote. So Zorn OS has uh, some a lot of improvements to this latest release of Zorn OS 16, including fractional scaling for high DPI 4K displays, better fingerprint reader support, and a variety of other things. But they make a statement that I think is really interesting because they're saying that Zorin OS 16 has the largest library of apps available out of the box of any open source desktop ever. Now, this is a very strong statement to state around um, you know, what distributions have the most application available and that sort of stuff. But the, way that, the reason why they, they say this is because that Zorin OS comes preloaded with app catalogs of Flathub for the Flatpaks, Snap Store for Snaps, and Ubuntu and Zorin OS app repositories for dev packages. But of course, you can also install uh, .deb files and app images uh, from wherever you get those. And also they say, which is interesting, that you can install Windows apps optionally using Wine. Now, I'm not sure if the Wine support is built in by default, but that would be interesting if it, if it is. Uh, so that it's, it's really interesting the way they're describing it because... You know, some distributions have support for FlatHub, some have it for Snaps, but I don't know many that have everything. I'm pretty sure Manjaro also has pretty much everything, but you might have to inst- uh, activate them. So the out-of-the-box difference there is uh, maybe that's the key term. I don't know. It's really interesting that they, they, they make that statement because, you know, a lot of people were like, uh, really? Let's see. Uh, and it's possible. I don't know. 
But they also added some uh, new feature called Jelly Mode, which makes uh, wobbly windows uh, available. So you can you, it'll activate wobbly windows when you do moved or resizing of a window. It's off by default, but if you like um, Jelly Mode, you can turn it on. So that is an option. And they've also made some changes to their software store, which is pretty cool because they've they've enabled the option to choose from different sources of an app. So for example, if you want the Snap and the Flatpak, you can actually just do uh, you can just choose which source you want from that rather than having to you know, find the different versions of the apps separately in those things, which is really cool. And they say that the software store also has received many under the hood optimizations as well as user interface improvements. So that's really cool. If you can check out Zorn OS beta, it is available right now. I have links in the show notes, but keep in mind, it is a beta. So there will be some changes that are coming and it may not be fully stable just yet. That's what the term beta means if you're not familiar. Uh, but yeah, Zorin OS 16 beta has been released and you can check it out if you want to with the links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of Mailspring, which is an email client for Linux. It also works on Mac and Windows uh, for those who are interested in that. Uh, it is a mail client that I think is quite interesting because of the changes that happened in the latest release of 1.9. First, before we get to that, let's uh, just I want to talk about the fact that Mailspring used to have an open source component and a closed source component. But they switched it to be completely open source, and we talked about it in episode 138 of Twill. So if you want to learn more about that, check out episode 138. Uh, but this this latest release has some really cool features. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the features it has in general, such as the multi-account options. It has unified inbox. It has touch and gesture support, advanced shortcuts, very fast search ability, also being able to undo send, which is basically like if you send an email, you have like five to 30 seconds to undo that send just in case, which is really nice to have. Uh, they have custom themes, including dark mode, if you want to do that. And it also has uh, some extra cool features in the pro edition that such as the snoozing messages, scheduling reminders, doing able to like send later, scheduling an email to be sent, uh, read receipts, link tracking, uh, quick reply templates, and a bunch of other stuff. Now, the difference here is that a lot of people don't like the MailSpring application historically because the Pro Edition required you to have a MailSpring ID account in order to have some of the Pro features like the sending later and the scheduling reminders and that sort of stuff because it uses uh, metadata on their servers to uh, keep track of when to send stuff and that sort of thing. So it's an interesting thing that people uh, have been, and including myself, have been hesitant to use MailSpring because of this, but that is no longer an issue. Because with MailSpring 1.9, the email client no longer requires the MailSpring ID. Now, you can still use the MailSpring ID for the pro features, but you can now opt out in the app's setup workflow and connect your email accounts without first having to create a MailSpring ID. So doing this also disables features that required for the pay, paid API stuff, such as the send later and read receipts, etc. But you can opt in and create an account at any time if you want to get those by going to one of the sections for the subscription for the, in the inside of the preferences. But what's really cool is uh, I have tested it out to try out Mailspring with this disabling the ID. And all you have to do is click a link that says, uh, I want to skip this section. And then you can get right into using Mailspring. So you get the benefit of all the cool features that Mailspring offers without having to worry about using the Mailspring ID if that's something that bothers you. 
Now, if you want these extra pro features, you can get a subscription to get those still, but it's an interesting uh, approach because when I first talked about it in uh, Twill 138, they announced that they were going to do this, but it's very quickly done. They, they transitioned from being closed to open source and then very quickly released this new version with the lack or the no longer requiring the Mailspring ID, which makes me more interested in trying out Mailspring because one, it's open source email client, which is great. Also, the Mailspring ID is no longer a requirement, which makes it more, you know, not more convenient necessarily because there are some cool features like the read receipts and the send later is a very cool feature uh, set. But I do like the idea of not having to create an account just to use the application. So I was super excited when Mailspring announced they were doing this. And now I'm even more excited to keep continue to try it out because I've only used it with one account so far. But Mailspring is quite nice. So I will probably be uh, you know, testing it out a little bit more or maybe switching to it. Who knows? We'll see. But I really love the fact that they made it possible to no longer have to use the Mailspring ID. So thank you very, very much for those who made Mailspring, because that is a fantastic uh, feature to have, uh, as well as, you know, just being an open source email client that is modern looking. A lot of people, you know, compare every open source email client to Thunderbird, right? Thunderbird's interface is not very modern. Let's just say that. And uh, every I always, you know, look for an email client that is modern, but also has a lot of cool modern features. And Mailspring does seem to fit that bill. And now that I can choose to use the Mailspring ID account or not, makes it even better in my opinion. So if you'll learn more about this or check out the application, I have links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com DLN. Bitwarden is a password manager, which is software that allows you to keep uh, have a peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, securing your online accounts is very, very important with the best security practice of having a different password for every account on every website. Now, that makes sense as a policy, but you know that does sound like a lot to do. But thanks to Bitwarden, you, can, you get a password vault that stores all those passwords for you so you don't have to keep up with them. You, you have an automatic generation of those passwords inside of Bitwarden so you don't have to make the passwords. And you even have the ability to automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to type it in. So in addition to that, they also have access for a variety of different de devices. So you can use a web browser extension, you can use the mobile apps, you can use a desktop application, and even the command line. And it also seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your devices. So you know you're the only person to have access to your data. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all of these great features, it also is 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source, which means the features and security of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community. And they don't just stop there. I mean, they could stop there, but they don't. They also bring in third-party security firms to audit their code to make sure it is as safe as possible. So get, get started at bitwarden.com slash DLN. And also check out their premium account because you get a ton of great features in addition to all of the fantastic features you get for free. You get one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, Priority Customer Service. You also get the new Bit, Bitwarden Send feature, which is a file transfer system. So, so fantastic. And you get all of this for just $10 per year. 
That's right, $10 per year, less than a dollar a month, gets you all of these great features. And they also have options for businesses and families and teams to be able to uh, trans share password between each other, make it really easy. You can also set up an account for your family and help them manage their passwords because you know, the people getting started with password managers, it might be a little bit overwhelming and you can solve all of that by using their family plan, which is fantastic. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN. It lets you get peace of mind knowing that your passwords and other sensitive data are safe. And it also helps you support a company that truly gets open source because by supporting them, you're supporting open source and you're supporting the This Week in Linux podcast. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN again to get started. Thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we're going to be talking about a very interesting desktop environment called JDE, or Jade, which stands for Just Another Desktop Environment. Not a fan of that terminology of just another or yet another. I've talked about it in that previous episode, so I'm not going to go into it right now, but not a fan of that, that approach. But this is a very interesting desktop environment, so if you are interested in working on a desktop environment that has HTML and CSS-style web technologies, this would be a really cool DE for you to check out because it has a small code base built, built with HTML and CSS. So you can change the desktop look and behavior however you want if you are familiar with those languages. It has a minimalistic interface. It has uh, being able to hide and show application categories. It has uh, application search that is both uh, a visual option and a, a keyboard option. It has a uh, settings panel integrates with individual application settings. They also have a really interesting uh, approach to the desktop wallpaper because it has animated backgrounds, including uh, video options. Uh, there are other Ds that also have video background options if you want, but this is just an interesting uh, thing to have inside of the, the desktop environment in general. I just think it's really cool. And they also have optional window tiling for auto tiling if you are a fan of tiling, which is pretty cool. Uh, they have what something I think is very, very interesting is scriptable workspaces. So if you're watching the video version, it just opened uh, GIMP in the video by switching to the different uh, workspace. And what it, way it works is that you tell the workspace through a script that you, whenever you switch to that particular workspace to automatically load whatever application you want, as well as other options you can do for scripting the workspace. It's very, very interesting. So if you are interested in any kind of uh, web-based uh, desktop environment, uh, I think this is a pretty, pretty cool approach to doing it and it's very unique style so if that's something that interests you check out the links in the show notes and if you're watching the video version you can see it's showing the uh, video background like i mentioned earlier so again links in the show notes below up next in the show let's uh, switch a little bit from uh, linux and talk about some bsd news because freebsd 13.0 has been released after an extended development cycle the freebsd project has announced the availability of freebsd 13.0 it has a number of key improvements and features in particular the 64-bit arm a arc uh, 64 now is a, a tier one architecture alongside the x86 64 or 64-bit x86 uh, architecture. So that's nice. That means it's going to get uh, continued support and extensive uh, development inside of it being a tier one architecture. And also FreeBSD 13.0 delivers on performance improvements, particularly for Intel CPUs. They've seen improvements to benchmarks uh, for the various different hardware, uh, such as for P-States, uh, for example. Uh, and also in great uh, upgrading the LLVM Clang 11 as the default compiler for, tool for the toolchain. 
Uh, also, they have improvements for support for 64-bit power architecture, a wide variety of networking improvements, uh, boot improvements for e EFI. Also, they have it makes a variety of other hardware support improvements and many other things, including uh, by default having support for the generic kernel builds of AES-NI and a variety of other things. So if you are interested in BSD, uh, it is... Uh, the latest version 13.0 is a big update from the previous version. Uh, but just to be clear, if you're not familiar, FreeBSD is uh, quite different while being also similar to Linux. It's uh, different in the sense of like compatibility with hardware, compatibility with applications and that sort of stuff. So just so you know, it won't have the level of compatibility that Linux has, but it is something that a lot of people are interested in. So if you are, check out the latest version of FreeBSD with 13.0. Links in the show notes. Up next in the show, speaking of FreeBSD, in fact, we're going to be talking about something that relates to FreeBSD in the legal news section, because Zinuos uh, has filed a lawsuit in the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, alleging theft of intellectual property and monopolistic market collusion against IBM and Red Hat. If this sounds familiar... Well, it kind of should because this is very uh, similar to the SCO versus IBM lawsuit that apparently still exists. We'll get to that in a second. But Zinuos is the company that purchased the remnants of SCO Group in 2011. And the SCO Group is a company that is really most famous for not anything they made, but just for the litigation it did against IBM and Linux. Because one, they refused to take no for an answer, and they also insisted that they were the owners of Unix, right? We'll get to that in a second. So the litigation from SCO Group, uh, from SCO versus IBM, started in 2003, and it's, it's worth noting that partially it was funded by a Microsoft that was very different at the time. Now, you could say that Microsoft is quite different for the past five years or so, maybe six years or so. You could kind of say that Microsoft has changed and saw the light. Now, there are people who argue whether or not they have, but at the time, Microsoft was uh, a very different, awful company, in my opinion. So, this was during the era of the Halloween documents. You may not be aware of those ter that term, but the Halloween documents are basically Microsoft acknowledging that the, that the open source software and uh, Linux has very much long-term viability, and they tried to you know, discuss strategies to get rid of it in open source and Linux. So the documents uh, basically uh, suggested tactics from Microsoft that they could use to disrupt the progress of open source software, and these documents also acknowledged that free software products such as Linux were technologically competitive with Microsoft's products and set out to a make a strategy to combat them. So this is the era of when what Microsoft was at the time related to the SCO versus IBM. This is the era of Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer and that sort of stuff. So it is quite different now, but people debate how much different. So with that in mind, let's move on to the rest of the topic related to the Zinuos uh, claims. So the original lawsuit... SCO claimed that IBM pulled proprietary code out of SCO Unix and inserted it into the Linux kernel. Now, this is interesting because of the further claims that SCO Group made, because in 2003, the SCO Group claimed ownership of AT&T Unix. 
that Linux is an unauthorized derivative of AT&T Unix. It's not a derivative of Unix at all. It's, it's somewhat inspired by Unix and Minix, but it's not a derivative in any way whatsoever. So that statement is nonsense. And I, that IBM violated contractual obligations by distributing Linux. Then later, in May of 2003, Novell publicly states that SCO does not own the AT&T Unix intellectual property in question because Novell does. And January 2004, Novell publicly indemnifies all Linux users from lawsuits over AT&T Unix intellectual property, which, if you don't know what that means, it basically says, don't worry, you don't have to worry about this, you're fine. Because they are stating that they own the intellectual property and only they could sue, and they're not going to. SCO responded to that by suing Novell. So in July 2005, uh, it, it gets better. Novell countersues SCO, seeking damages in excess of SCO's net worth. So if Novell were to win, SCO would probably not be able to continue. And in 2007, um, a U.S. federal judge ruled that Novell is the owner of Unix and Unixware copyrights, thus creating a problem for SCO. So they appealed it, of course, and whatnot. But uh, also in 2011, the SCO versus Novell uh, appeals were uphold like the the court appeals court uphold the decision for uh, Novell basically saying Novell wins. Now, why are we talking about this? Because that's 2011. Well, the Sco versus Novell uh, lawsuit was uh, uh, ruled on, appealed, affirmed, appealed again, and also finally affirmed again in 2011. But the Sco versus IBM was still ongoing the entire time, and apparently is still ongoing now, which is just crazy. Uh, so, you know, since 2003, wow. And now a very similar lawsuit is joining it with Zinuos, uh, making a lawsuit that alleges a lot of, um, in my opinion, silly things. So, for example, this new lawsuit alleges that IBM incorporated unspecified code from companies Unixware and Open Server Code into IBM's own AIX operating system. It also alleges that IBM and Red Hat directly conspired to divide the entire Unix-like operating system market up into large businesses opportunities for IBM and smaller business opportunities for Red Hat and trying to lock them out of the market, essentially. But they don't say when the timeline of their collusion happened. They just say at some point, basically. So that's kind of weird. Uh, continuing on with the ridiculous claims, the company is lawsuits also claiming that IBM is expressly out to destroy FreeBSD as a whole. They, like I said, uh, speaking of FreeBSD, now we're back to that. So this comp this lawsuit claims the following, and I quote: IBM's strategy with Red Hat has been expressly to destroy FreeBSD, upon which Zinuos' most recent innovations have been based. Um, obviously, that's a ridiculous claim in my opinion anyway, that they're saying that Red Hat and IBM are out to destroy FreeBSD. No, they're not. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. But uh, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, they also go on to take it even further into weirdness by stating that they, they're not just demanding damages being paid back to them. Uh, they're demanding the reversal of the IBM's acquisition of Red Hat entirely. So, and I quote from the lawsuit, the merger should be declared unlawful in violation of at least Section 7 of the Clayton Act 
and IBM and Red Hat should be ordered to divest of each other and void all associated agreements between them. So this is a very interesting topic because when this has been happening for so long, uh, I never covered it on the show because it started, you know, a multiple, a decade and a half before I started the show. Uh, so there was no reason to cover it. But, and I thought the SCO versus IBM was gone. Apparently, it actually wasn't gone. And now there's a new one for even more ridiculous things, in my opinion, allegedly, related to uh, saying that they're trying to destroy FreeBSD. That's ridiculous, in my opinion. That they're trying to, uh, you know, break up the acquisition from for, for uh, IBM of Red Hat. Also ridiculous. So many things of this this uh, topic is just baffling. So if um, if this doesn't help you understand what's going on, I I get it because I don't really understand what's going on because of how ridiculous these things are happening, in my opinion, are. So uh, you may want to look further into these topics, and I'll have links for you to do so in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of 12.0 for LLVM. Now, for those who are not familiar, this is an open source compiler stack that creates a lot of different things, including the Clang compiler. So LLVM used to stand for low-level virtual machine, but it doesn't stand for that anymore. They actually changed it so the, the name of the project is just LLVM, and that's it, and it means nothing. So uh, that's not confusing at all, but there you go. Uh, it's, uh, it's a compiler infrastructure designed for compile time, link time, runtime, and idle time optimizations for programs from various different programming languages. It currently supports compilation of C, C++, and Objective-C programs. Uh, it uses uh, front ends derived from GCC 4.0, uh, 4.2, and a custom uh, new front end, which is Clang. It supports uh, x86, x86-64, IA-64, PowerPC, and Spark, with some support for uh, alpha and ARM under development for those who are interested in that. Uh, this latest release of 12 is a big feature release because uh, LLVM 12 support uh, added support for x86-64 microarchitecture features, uh, which basically matching the, the behavior of GCC's uh, toolchain. Uh, they add support for Intel Alder Lake and Sapphire Rapids processors, provides initial support for AMD Zen 3, uh, continued work around C22, C plus plus twenty, power optimizations, the power architecture, and a bunch more. If you if you like to learn more about this, you can check the links in the show notes. There's quite a bit more in here, but uh, I'll leave it to you to check it out. If you'd like to, to learn more, links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to be talking about some humble bundles. We talked about this last week, but these bundles are still available if you are interested. A couple of them have only two days left. The Game Dev Design and Graphics Bundle by Mercury, which has uh, books about game development using Python, programming fundamentals using Java, storyboarding, 3D printing, computer graphics, programming, and OpenGL, and a bunch more. That has two days left. Also, another one that has two days left is the Machine Learning Zero to Hero Bundle by Manning Publications, which has uh, machine learning with TensorFlow, deep learning for vision systems, AI-powered search, deep learning with Python, and much more. So if you want to check those out, you have uh, two more days left to do that. And also, there is the Ultimate Python Bookshelf Bundle by Packet, 
which is uh, this is a uh, basically it's a plethora of different Python programming uh, uh, books that you can learn a lot of stuff about Python if you were interested in that. That has nine days left. Uh, you get Python Workshop, Web Development with Django, a Hands-On exploratory, uh, exploratory Data Analysis with Python, Python Automation Cookbook, Data Cleaning Cookbook, Data Engineering with Python, and much more, including Learn Quantum Computing with Python and IBM's Quantum Experience. So that's quite interesting. And that has nine days. And again, if you want to check this out, I have links in the show notes. And also real quick, all of these links in the show notes for the various student homework bundles are affiliate links. So if you are interested in any of these bundles, please use the links below because I get a small commission, a uh, very small percentage, but still it's very nice if you don't mind uh, using the links in the show notes. If you plan to buy them anyway or are interested from this episode, please use those links in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show or the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And if you become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics and just, just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. And you can also uh, order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt or the This Week in Linux t-shirt that I'm currently wearing by going to dlnstore.com. And there's quite a new, a lot of, a lot of new stuff in the DLN store. Uh, there's hats now, there's more stickers, there's uh, travel mugs, all sorts of new stuff in the DLN store. So check that out, dlnstore.com. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of those shows on the Destination Linux network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to dlnlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for your weekly source of Linux. Good news.